Well, I'm uh, really excited to be with you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to join you in your church camp. Uh, I look forward to meeting many of you and uh, so glad you have name tags. That is a lifesaver for me. Uh, And also really looking forward to the opportunity to open up God's Word with you. We're going to take a sort of a very short journey uh, through the Bible's story of worship. And we're literally going to begin at the beginning and end at the end. We're going to start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we're going to end on Sunday in Revelation 21 and 22. And in between, we're going to jump into two key places en route in that journey, between the garden and the city, between the beginning and the end, and just looking at this overview of the theme of worship, which is absolutely central, of course, to the Bible story, central to our lives, and central to our relationship with God. So that's where we're going. How about I pray, and then we're going to jump into this uh, first section. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here together as friends, as brothers and sisters, uh, and in a, in a weekend where uh, we can relax and enjoy uh, each other's fellowship, but also uh, dig deeply into your word. And so we pray that your word would be fresh and vibrant in our hearts and our lives. We know that this is only possible if your Holy Spirit is at work amongst us. And so we pray now that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, give us insight into your word and press its truths upon us, we pray. And as we do this, we pray that we might see more clearly who you are, what a great God you are, and what a wonderful privilege it is to worship you. And so we pray this in the name of your Son and our wonderful Saviour, Jesus. Amen. Well, over the years, I've uh, actually married a lot of people, uh, which doesn't sound real good, but uh, I mean, I have taken the weddings for a lot of people. And uh, as you work with a couple preparing for their wedding, uh, one, of the, one of the biggies is working out what vows they are going to make to each other. And it seems to me these days, sometimes couples basically just want to sort of say love songs to each other. But historically, vows were not love songs. They were very serious pledges to each other. And I remember one couple that particularly wanted to use the words of the 1662 Anglican prayer book. And they are really the classic original English wedding vows. You uh, probably know those words, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, and so on. But what struck me as I uh, prepare for that wedding with them were the words that are used for the exchanging of rings. These are the words that the couple say to each other as they give the ring. With this ring, I thee wed. With my body, I thee worship. And with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. Now, if you can get your head around to these, I was absolutely floored by that middle phrase, with my body, I thee worship. I will worship you with my body. What on earth does that mean? Is that even appropriate to say to someone else, I'm going to worship you with my body? Well, actually, what it means is this. 
with my body, I will have total allegiance to you. I will be completely devoted to you. With my body, I will have unwavering devotion and commitment to you. And really, isn't that a wonderful thing to pledge to someone else on your wedding day? And that actually tells us what worship is. Worship is total allegiance, supreme devotion, unwavering commitment to something. And there are actually many things to which we might give supreme devotion or unwavering commitment. Uh, Many Victorians give that to footy. Uh, football is the uh, greatest religion of Victoria. The players are treated like gods. The MCG is the, uh, the largest temple in the city. Uh, the, the fans are the devoted worshippers, and they are unbelievably devoted. I'm astounded at the commitment of footy fans. Uh, they will make enormous sacrifices. They'll, they'll fly across the country and put themselves up in a hotel. That's hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a footy match. They'll stand out there in the freezing cold and the driving rain. They'll wear the colours. They'll sing the songs. They know the players inside out. For many people, that is unwavering allegiance, total commitment. There are other things that we might have massive commitment to, uh, to possessions, to family, to other people, to entertainment to the God of stomach, uh, to the God of fun. So many different things we might worship. It's so easy, isn't it, to become obsessive about something. We become obsessive about a person. We become obsessive about work. We become obsessive about a hobby or about home renovations, almost anything. In fact, it seems that it's almost impossible for us to avoid worshipping things. Why is that? How come our hearts are so inclined to latch on to things and give them the supreme devotion? Well, the Bible answers that right in the very first few of its pages. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and it gives us the beginning of the Bible story, it gives us the beginning of human history, the beginning of this world, and it gives us the beginning of the story of worship. Genesis 1 introduces the God who's worthy. Of worship. That's the first thing I want us to look at, the God who's worthy of worship. What, what's the picture of God in Genesis chapter 1? Well, first off, we meet a God who is eternal. In the beginning, God. There, right in the beginning, before anything was made, before anything else is created, he is there. From, from before 
the start, from before time. Little kids sometimes ask that brilliant question, who made God? And of course the answer is, no one made God. He always was. He always existed. If God had come from someone or something, that thing would be more ultimate than God and would be God. God is eternal. And that means he is self-sufficient, self-existent. He existed before anything else was. He's not dependent on anything. I mentioned before we have some uh, little grandchildren and uh, about three months ago our youngest grandchild was born and he was born a bit premature. And so I was there up in the... Uh, the uh, neonatal intensive care unit and he's wired up and there are tubes going in and out of him all over the place and there's this 24-7 care and all these monitors going on and you know that if he were left there for half an hour without attention he'd be gone he'd, he'd die in no time totally dependent And we, you know, 10, 50, 80 years later, can only extend that time a bit without other things. Leave us for a few weeks and we're dead. We are utterly dependent on other things and other people. But God is self existent and self-sustaining. And the God who is eternal and self-sufficient is supremely powerful. We're told in verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. He, He created by speaking. He spoke and things were formed out of nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I have trouble creating things out of something. Uh, Can you comprehend the power of being able to create something out of nothing? (laughs) How cool would that be? Students, let there be an essay. And behold, there was an essay. And it was very good. (laughs) Let there be a home renovation. Let there be a garden. How how magnificent. John, let there be a sermon. And behold, it was a very good sermon. God created by the sheer power of his will and the power of his voice. And what he created was vast. He created, we're told, the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, the universe. And the universe he created is massive. We, we live on a, um, a little continent called Australia and a little planet called Earth in a little solar system which is part of a galaxy. And, and the size of our galaxy is absolutely mind-boggling, but it's one of perhaps 100 to 200 billion galaxies each with hundreds of billions of stars. 
of which the Son is one. It's incomprehensibly vast. uh, You might even say a little excessive on God's part, perhaps. But if he is eternal and vast in and of himself, that is what he creates by the power of his voice. But he's not only supremely powerful, we're also told in Genesis 1, he is wonderfully creative. The world he created is not as massive, it's beautiful. The days of creation speak of order and symmetry and design, but it's beautiful design, like a factory is orderly, but it's, it's kind of mechanical and perfunctory. Creation is delightful. He creates beautiful plants and wonderful insects and flowers and mountains and lakes. Uh, a few weekends ago I was in, uh, in Hall's Gap. There's just a great place for street, seeing Australian animals. And you hear the, uh, the raucous screech of cockatoos and uh, the... The, the crazy laugh of kookaburras. And, and you just think about wallabies and kangaroos. Like, what a, what a crazy design. <laughs> Fancy thinking that up. I almost feel like when, when God was doing Australian animals, he was having a bit of fun. He's creative. And everything he created was good. He looks and he says, that's good. You know what it's like to stand back when you've done something. You look at, a, look at something you've made, something you've done. And I find that when I look at what I've done, I always see flaws. I might be able to say, that's not bad. It's okay. She'll be right. But pretty well nothing I do is perfect. God looks at this vast world that he has created and he said, that is good. Perfect. Flawless. And then this eternal, powerful, creative God is intensely personal. At the pinnacle of creation, he now creates people, man and woman, in his own image, designed somehow to reflect something of his very being, created in his image, in order that they might have relationship with him. The God of love creates people with the capacity to love him. And so Genesis 1, if you step back from it, is about an eternal powerful, creative, personal God. Now, in all kinds of fields of endeavour, there are prizes and awards and honours given, aren't there? People are given medals and titles and, and prize money, wonderful accolades. After a concert, uh, there, there, there are bows and there is applause. If you ever go to, um, to theatre, or to opera or to ballet, there are curtain calls. You know about curtain calls? The curtain comes down and it goes up, and they applaud again, it goes down, and up, and they do it again. Do you know the record number 
of curtain calls ever. I believe the record number of curtain calls is 89. Margot Fontaine, the ballerina, 89 curtain calls. I reckon that must have been more exhausting than the ballet itself. That, that means the, the audience were in absolute raptures. What then should be given to a God like this? What should be given to a God who is eternal and self-sufficient and powerful and creative and personal? Our worship. Our total allegiance. Our supreme devotion. Our unwavering commitment. He is worthy of endless adoration and praise and honour. In fact, not to worship him is devastatingly wrong. That's the God we meet in Genesis 1. The God who's worthy of our worship. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, we meet the God who designed us for worship. We move from the God who's worthy of worship to the God who designed us for worship. Genesis 2 is really a close-up of day 6 of creation. We're given more detail on the creation of people. And we're told in verse 8 of chapter 2 that God planted a garden in the east in Eden. Now, you know that there are basically three rules in real estate. Location, location, location. Yep, there are three great rules of real estate. Well, here is my top real estate tip. Eden. Yep, like if you can buy real estate in Eden, you are sorted. It was the dream location. It was like paradise. And it was paradise. <laughs> it, it was a lush, beautiful garden. There are exotic trees. There are wonderful animals. There are these four mighty rivers that are described in verses 10 to 14 that, that uh, nourish and, and, and keep the whole area fertile. There are many precious stones and gems that are identified in verse 12. And I love the, the uh, phrase that it has there that uh, the gold of that land is good. Love the idea of good gold. I've never actually seen bad gold. Uh, to me, all gold is good, but um, it, it says the gold of that land was good. Eden was paradise, and God placed there the people that He'd made, and He gave them the task of caring for that garden. Verse fifteen: The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. You could translate that to serve in it and keep it. And that word serve 
work or served in it is a loaded word. Later in the Old Testament, that word will be used time and time and time again for the priestly service of the Levites at the temple. And here it's, it's preempting that word and saying, Adam, as he gardened, as he named the animals, as he worked in God's world, was serving the Lord. He was like a priest in that sanctuary. There, as he worked the garden, he would be honouring and glorifying God. So that he would do that in conscious submission to God, God gives one prohibition, only one. One prohibition as a test of his allegiance. Eat of any of the trees, but don't eat that one. Because that will be a test whether Adam will be doing everything in total allegiance to the Lord, in complete submission to him. In chapter 3, you know, Satan comes along and speaks to Eve and tempts her. What should she have said to Satan, do you think? She, she probably should have said something like this. You want me to question God? No way! How ridiculous! To, to question God's word? To question God's love? Look, look at what he's given us. This is paradise. My husband is literally the best looking man in the world. <laughs> we love each other. And we love God and we delight to serve him in this beautiful place. Our joy is found in knowing him and serving him in his world. Besides, he knows exactly what is best for us. What good could possibly come from a creature defying its creator? Is that not the kind of thing he should have said? You see, they were meant to serve God freely, gladly, because if they did that, they would enjoy true freedom. True freedom is found in worshipping and glorifying God. True freedom is found in obeying God. Like a fish. I mean, when, when is a fish most free? A fish is most free when it is in water. Imagine a stupid little fish that um, is sick of being in this kind of cold, liquidy environment and uh, says unto himself, Ah, if only I wasn't in water all the time. Like, you know, he looks up and he sees a bird up in a little tree and he tosses himself, one almighty flip, tosses himself onto the riverbank. What happens as soon as he's on the riverbank? (laughs) 
He will gasp. He will die. A fish is free in water. When, when is a train most free? The train is most free when it's on its tracks. Yes? If it were to break free from its tracks, it is a train wreck. When are we most free? We are most free when we are living as God designed us to live. When we're living in submission to him and in obedience to him. And if Adam and Eve had obeyed the Lord, they would not only have continued to enjoy the garden, they would have continued to enjoy God. We read in chapter 3 of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it seems to almost be suggested as if that were his pattern, that he regularly came somehow and had fellowship, communion, relationship with his people. You see, the Garden of Eden wasn't just a garden. It was, in a very real sense, a sanctuary. A meeting place with God. And actually here then, we've we've kind of got a pricey of the two dimensions of worship that echo through the rest of the Bible. First, there is serving and worshipping God and obeying and trusting and living for God in the whole of life. As you garden, as you work, as you do daily life, that is your worship of God. And second, as you engage in personal, intimate relationship with the God who loves you and to whom you express your love and devotion. Worship in the broad sense, the whole of life, and worship in this narrower sense of communion and fellowship with God himself. Throughout the rest of the Bible you find those two dimensions of worship time and time again. We, friends, are hardwired to worship God in those two ways. Well, If only the Bible's story of worship finished there. Wouldn't it be great if if that was it? But there's the end of the Bible, and they lived happily ever after. For one thing, it would make memorising the Bible a whole lot easier. Um, Wouldn't be too hard to choose which text you're going to preach on, like, oh, it's going to be Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. Like, it would be a much more manageable book. The Bible doesn't stop there. There are another 1188 chapters to go. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us about the God we refused to worship. We've seen the God who's worthy of our worship, the God who designed us to worship him. But in Genesis 3 is the God we refused to worship. Tragically, Satan did come and did question God's words and did tempt 
Eve who then tempted Adam and they made a fatal choice. They chose to rebel against God. They chose to disobey that command. They chose to declare autonomy and do things their way, not God's way. And immediately their disobedience led to disaster. God had said, if you eat of that tree, not because it was a poisonous tree, but because it was a test of their allegiance, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And die they did. Not physically, immediately. No, they died spiritually. They died to that relationship of intimacy and closeness to God. Death now engulfed them and immediately they're they're cut off from God. Immediately there's guilt and blame, hiding and fear. And they're cast out of the beauty and the tranquility and the, the, the intimacy and the loveliness of the garden into a harsh and cursed world. And what I want you to particularly notice is that that first sin was a worship sin. They chose something in creation ahead of the creator. And that is what idolatry is all about. In the Bible story of worship, Idolatry is the opposite of worship. And idolatry is putting anything in this world in the place of God. Exalting anything to the detriment of our relationship with God. And tragically, that initial idolatry has led to endless idolatry. G.K. Chesterton brilliantly said, when man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing, he worships anything. And, and that's what's happened. You see, we're hardwired for worship, and so when we're not worshipping God, our hearts will still crave what God gives us. Our hearts long for joy. We long for pleasure. We long for a sense of meaning and purpose. We long for beauty. We long for intimacy. And so we'll chase paradise all over the place. We chase it in relationships. We chase it in our work. We chase it in money and possessions. We chase it in experiences and pleasures. We'll make an idol of almost anything. In fact, we can even make an idol of gospel ministry. That becomes the thing that we look to for a sense of purpose and meaning and value and significance. Even gospel ministry can usurp the place of God. We create our 
plastic Edens because we are hardwired for worship. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O God. Well, it should be clear by now that worship is not just about going to church and definitely not just about singing songs of praise. Worship is about your soul. Worship is what it, is about what enthralls your soul. What satisfies it? What, what draws out our deepest longings and desires and aspirations and hopes? And so, I wonder what you worship. What, what are you driven to again and again as a source of joy? seeking pleasure, for seeking security, for seeking affirmation. What what has a grip on your heart demanding sacrifices of you and yet never really satisfying? What is there in in your life that supplants the place of God and the supremacy that he should have? If, If there is such a thing, it is your God. And it's a false God that can never satisfy your heart. Well, thankfully, God has done something about our plight. Already in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's a little promise. A little promise that's going to get unfolded and chased down and pursued and eventually fulfilled in the next 1188 chapters of the story. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, conflict, tension, hostility between you, Satan, and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It foretells a conflict that will unfold through the rest of Scripture between Satan and the seed, the offspring, the descendant of the woman. And one day there will be a descendant of Eve who will crush Satan's head. (laughs) The Bible story, you see, will lead us toward Jesus Christ as that descendant of the woman who would crush 
Satan. It'll lead us toward Jesus as the one who restores our relationship with God and takes us back to the relationship that God designed us to have with himself. It'll show us Jesus as the only one who can regain paradise for us. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. We've got the rest of the weekend to do that. And we'll be looking at how that story unfolds. For now, for tonight, I'd like you to register just one thing. You were made for God. Made to know Him. Made to love Him. You're made to serve Him and delight in Him. You are hardwired to worship God. And only when your heart is fully set on Him will your soul be fully satisfied.